reading this morning can be found on page 1002 in the Bibles in front of you. And we're reading from Mark 2, starting at verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Well, it's great being back here at Manly. It's so similar to Rudy Hill. I can't believe the similarities. It stuns me every time. <laughs> and it is a delight. And I think I come more for my sake than for your sake, because I can always feel like I come away more encouraged than ever before. So thank you for the privilege. Thank you, Bruce, wherever you are. And uh, it's a great purple passage we're going to look at today. Um, and so why don't we just pray to our Father in heaven that he will, wherever we stand on the faith spectrum, whether in, within inside the circle of faith or on the outside exploring. Uh, this is a word for everybody. Uh, so I'm going to pray that God will give us soft hearts and open minds. Father in heaven, you're such a good God, Lord, and we thank you that you've not kept yourself hidden in the heavens, but have come in person uh, and then provided eyewitnesses that your son's testimony of word and deed may be passed on so that here we are 2,000 years later in this beautiful corner of your vineyard to hear of Jesus Christ's authority to forgive. Lord, wherever we are on the spectrum of faith, uh, whether it's disbelief, uh, whether it's belief mixed with doubt, uh, whatever configuration, Lord, this is a word for all of us. And so, Lord, do your work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, who knows Hannah Gatsby? The comedian who's turned the world up, the comedic world upside down. Yeah, she's uh, quite an amazing comedian from Tasmania. And she was about a month ago talking at a breakfast uh, for a whole bunch of entertainers in the States. And she said, I want to talk about the good men. So everyone applauded because that was, seemed to be a rare, a rare topic. And uh, she said, but you may not want to applaud too hard because really, she said, I'm sick of good men criticising bad men. The bad men being the Bill Cosby's, the Harvey Weinstein's, etc., etc., uh, who've been accused of sexual assault, and rightly so, or charged with sexual assault. And so she said, I want to talk about the, as she said, the Jimmies, the, the late night TV guys, and a whole bunch of others who 
who seem to uh, have a proclivity to want to criticize the bad men. Uh, and she said, be careful where you draw that line, because that line, boy, seems to be moving. Uh, and the reason why it keeps moving as to who are the good and who are the bad, and the reason thing she was saying is, you know, these guys are one thing when they're with their wives and mothers and children, they're quite another when they're with their frat party mates. And uh, she said the reason is because they skim read the rule book and uh, seem to draw the line arbitrary. And I thought, my goodness, preach it, sister. She was really going. Uh, and then she broadened it to now consider put in that not just good men but white people and then she broadened it and broadened it but really she kind of stopped because she really needed to broaden it even further still and that's exactly what Jesus does he comes into this world and uh, uh, he draws a line as to who is good and who is bad and he said actually the whole lot of you are on, one, on the wrong side of that line and he said the reason is basically I mean he declares no one is good except God alone but he said and the reason is because we've all skimmed the rule book you know to love God and love your neighbor uh, and uh, all we need to do is to make, our feels, feel, make ourselves feel good and justify our position is simply this. Just find someone who's worse than you and you can draw the line and tell yourself you're good. It's true. I've, been, I've talked to guys in jail, you know, and they'll tell me that they're good. I said, like, why would you think that you're good? Just, I'm just curious. And they'd say, because we're not like them over there, them being pedophiles in that section of the, of the uh, correctional services. And they draw a line and said, because we're not. But I said, you know, you have murdered your spouse, like, why would you think you're good? Because as long as I can find someone worse than me, then I'm good. And, uh, and the reality is, Jesus comes along, like I said, and he draws a line and says, none of us are good except God alone. But the difference with him is he doesn't look over the line with condemnation and self-righteousness. He says, you know, I want you on my side of the line. But the only way you get on my side of the line is by, offering, by accepting the offer of forgiveness. And that's really what today's passage is about. Jesus' authority to forgive sins. There you go. There's no, there's no surprise at the end of the story. You know where I'm going. Uh, we pick it up in, this is the second account of the life of Jesus. We're in the second chapter. We've been introduced to the fact that Jesus has been going from village to village and town to town in Israel. Uh, he's been proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. Essentially that God has come to take charge of a world that has thumbed its nose at him. And as he does that and exercises his authority as king, he demonstrates that in signs and wonders, performing extraordinary miracles. You could say he's dragging a little bit of heaven wherever he goes. Uh, let's pick it up in verse 3, although I don't think it's on the screen, this verse. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. So the guy's paraplegic or quadriplegic. Um, he couldn't walk. Uh, he was carried by his four friends. They must have been good friends. Uh, and try as they can, they cannot force their way through that crowded house to get him to Jesus. Uh, obviously, in the days where there's no disabled parking zones, like no one's kind of setting aside any special place for those who couldn't take care of themselves. Now, you can tell these four men are desperate because... They've worked out that Jesus is probably the only person who could do something about their mate's broken back. Now, this man doesn't have a name, but you can bet your life he has a story. A bit like my cousin Paul has a story. He, he was kind of the cousin who sort of spearheaded... I've got a hundred first cousins. I'm Maltese. I've got a hundred first cousins. We breathe like fries. I've got an aunt. He had 16 kids in Malta. It's horrendous, mothers, I know, but that's true. Anyway... 
there's a lot of us. He was the eldest. He led the way. And uh, we, we love Paul. And he, he, was the, he was cool for us. You know, he, he had, he, at 21, he had a beautiful fiance, a great job, and a car that had wings on it. It looked like it could fly. You'll still see those cars in Cuba today if you go there. It's one of the good things about the, the revolution. <laughs> Nothing changed. And uh, whatever he loved, we loved. So he was into Elvis. I'm, I'm ancient, right? He loved Elvis, so we loved Elvis. He followed the dragons. And though we come from the western suburbs, we're all dragon supporters. Um, and one day, uh, he was na- we, we all grew up on farms. And he was nailing some sheets of iron on a shed out the back. And it was only about four metres high. And while he was nailing the sheets of iron, the, 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 the roof collapsed. And he landed on his backside. His brother came up to him and said, are you okay, Paul? And Paul said, I'm fine. I can't feel a thing. And that would be the problem for the rest of his life. He couldn't feel a thing from the waist down. They took him to Royal North Shore Hospital, put him through a few operations, hoping the next one would fix him, but it never did. Um, his whole life was transformed. You know, his fiance broke the engagement within six months. Two years later, she was married to someone else. He would have to wait another 30 years before he, he would say, I do, to someone at the altar. Uh, he just lost so much his mobility, his dreams, his woman. My sister, who was studying in nursing at Marta Hospital, would visit him, and she said she would just hold him in her arms, and he would just weep for hours as to all that he had lost. I want to say that's how desperate these friends are to get their mate to Jesus so that he will heal his back. And, uh, and so the story begins. They are so desperate, my goodness, they punch a hole through someone else's roof to get their mate to Jesus. It happened in a place called Capernaum. You can still go there. I was there actually in May last year. It's on the seaside of Galilee, the, the Sea of Galilee. Um, I think we've got some piggies there uh, from the foundational stones of that whole village. It's a first century archaeological site. The reason why I say that is people, if you're new to Christian faith, you may think we're talking about Middle Earth in Lord of the Rings, but we're talking real people, real places, Real situations, real events. This is history. And, um, and you can see the, the floor plan. <laughs> There's small houses, two bedroom, uh, you know, just the single bedroom, studio apartment. Uh, can't squeeze more than about maybe 40 in there. And uh, like I said, try as they can, they can't force their way through the crowd. So they, they literally punch a hole through someone else's roof. Now, you may struggle to stay with me for the course of this talk, but no one, had, no one had problems listening to Jesus. But given even that, all eyes are off Jesus and on that thing that's happening above his head. Because they work out which room Jesus is in and then which part of the room, and they dig a hole directly above Jesus' head. And it's essentially a thatched roof, so they're kind of ripping it apart, some of it falling upon Jesus. I mean, he's, he's looking like a bit of a mess at this point. And uh, everyone's eyes are seeing the hole get progressively get bigger 5, 10, 15 minutes, however long it took, till finally they were able to lower the man. It's funny how you can find space when you need it. And they lowered the man at the feet of Jesus. And there he is. And you think, whoa. At that moment, with that disabled man lying at Jesus' feet, what do you think is the worst thing that could happen? Nothing. I mean, imagine after such a grand entrance, Jesus looked at him and said, you poor thing, I, I wish I could do something about it. I just can't. I'm as useless as everyone else. Why don't I pray a little prayer to make you feel better? But that's not what he says, is it? He looks at the man. He recognizes the faith of the four men up on the roof and the man lying helpless. And he knows essentially that man who's lying helpless at his feet is saying, 
Jesus, uh, I trust you with the most important thing in my life. Sorry, I trust you with the most important thing in my life. My body, do something. And then Jesus does what you expect him to do, what he does many times. He says to the guy, get up, take up your mat and get out of here. But of course he doesn't do it, verse five. This is always the twist in this story, verse five. When Jesus saw their faith, the four up above the one, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now he's not saying that the guy's paraplegia is due to some sin in his life. Elsewhere, Jesus knocks that one on the head. That's a horrendous kind of, um, an abusive way of trying to, you know, kick a person when they're down. Just blame them for it. No, no, he's there. This guy's there for one reason. <laughs> and uh, he wants to basically be healed. He didn't come to have Jesus hear his confession, okay? He didn't enter through such a grand entrance hoping that Jesus would minister to his soul. He wanted Jesus to heal his body. He wanted to do what I'm doing right now, to be able to stand on his own two feet without the help of his friends. So, do you understand what Jesus is doing here? He's, he's redefining whatever you think is the problem in your life and mine. And this is such a critical thing to do, friends. He's saying, you understand what the, not your only problem, of course not, but what your core problem, what your biggest problem in life is. And unless you understand what your biggest problem is, you'll never find the, the ultimate solution. And he's essentially saying, it's not that your back is broken. It's not that your marriage is on the rocks. It's not that your company's gone bankrupt. It's not that you've never found the love of your life. All of these are griefs and worthy of tears and have no doubt that God weeps with those who weep. But what he's doing here for us is he's redefining what the core issue of life is. And it's so easy to get distracted by other important matters. And the problem is sin. Now, this is just the moment in the sermon where everyone wants to tune out because it never, it never seems politically correct to talk about sin. But Jesus seems to talk about it, so we've got to stay there. You, got, you can't understand the good news unless you diagnose the problem properly and understand the bad news. Well, what is this thing called sin that needs to be dealt with? Um, it's essentially taken from ancient archery where it, it means to miss the target to fall short of the bullseye if the bullseye is to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself then to sin is to essentially fall short of it to do that which we shouldn't do to not do that which we should do we're all in the same boat and the short-term result of that is death because the Bible says the wages of sin is death the long-term effect of that is what Jesus will say on 12 occasions hell um, being disabled my goodness it's a terrible thing but meeting God unforgiven oh that's a nightmare that will just never end and so, and, and friends, you don't need to be in the category of a murderer or a molester before kind of God takes our sin seriously. Um, and whether you kind of feel guilty, you've got a very sensitive conscience, or you, or you have a seed conscience, you don't sort of feel the guilt in any way, it's kind of beside the point. We're not talking about a psychological reality here that will vary from human to human. We're talking about the fact that God has got a case against a lot of us. Remember, Jesus drew the line and put us all on the same side of that line. No one is good except God alone. And it's not to say that some aren't worse than others, of course not, they clearly are. Uh, as we like to say in my church, you miss a bus by three minutes or you miss a bus by three days, guess what? You've missed the bus. And humanity has missed the bus on this one. We've all fallen short of God's standard. And if we're not forgiven, it may, will result in a Christless eternity. And I want to say, that's how desperate this man is and I am a you are when it comes to meeting Jesus and having his forgiveness it's a bleak situation. And into this sort of bleak scenario, my goodness, 
Jesus steps forward and says, you know, I've got terrific news for you. I and I alone have authority on earth to forgive sins. My goodness, what good news is that? I and I alone have the power, the right, the authority to give you a permanent fresh start and a permanent clean slate. Emphasis on the permanent. (laughs) But the thing about forgiveness is only the person who you've wronged is entitled to forgive you. So you know Bruce, your pastor, dear friend of mine, we know he loves his fishing. I'm sure he's given you lots of fishing sermon illustrations. I would if I was as successful a fisherman as he was. He is. Anyway, he's got a bunch of fishing rods. Imagine this afternoon, in a, you know, I have a bad moment, and I go into his garage and I start snapping all these fishing rods. <laughs> Every one of them, and there's quite a few of them, let me tell you. No point you coming up to me and say, look, Ray, you've obviously had a bad day. You are Maltese. You've got a short temper. I understand that. But seriously, what you did was wrong. But I want you to know I forgive you. Well, fat lot of good is going to do me. I didn't sin against you. I sinned against him in that scenario. (laughs) Even the thought of it's horrendous. Even the thought of it might have ruined our friendship. I thought you were in the back. Did you sneak up the front again? (laughs) Now, while he's... Well, it's, you know, you, you telling me you forgive me is a lovely concept, but it's his forgiveness I need. Because in that story, he's the one who I sinned against. Now, since this is God's world, and since every one of us is made in the image of God, it's, this is a hard concept to grasp. Okay, everyone's made in the image of God. They have his eternal value placed in them. So that when we sin against, when we do the dirty, when we injure another human being, we're actually injuring God. Think of all the times you've sinned against God by virtue of how you've mistreated other human beings. That alone will keep you weighed down for eternal guilt. And Jesus is saying, I've got on earth, I, I have the right, the authority to forgive sins, every one of them. In fact, past, present and future. Now when Jesus starts declaring that this man is forgiven, the religious experts, about two or three of them that were there, they knew their Bibles, and they start thinking, oh, they're thinking to themselves. They're not saying it out loud. They're thinking to themselves, who the hell does he think he is thinking he can forgive sins? That prerogative is God's alone, and they're absolutely right. Verse 6. Some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And like I said, they're absolutely correct. And yet, interestingly, in a God-like way, he knew exactly what they were thinking in their heads. And uh, so he turns to them and he asks this question. And it's kind of like a riddle, really. Verse 9. Which is easier, to say to this disabled man who's lying helpless at his feet, my son, your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, get up, take up your mat and walk? Which is easier? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll save you a lot of time. Both are impossible for you and me to do, and both are possible if you're God. Now, in one hand, let's face it, you can train a budgie to say, my son, your sins are forgiven. I had a friend who trained his budgie to say, Jesus, Lord. So you really can train him to say anything. Clearly, there's nothing magical about the words. The reality, the, the issue is, how do you know the person is forgiven? How can you prove it one way or another? Because the thing about forgiveness is, you don't look any different. Like in this room right now, there will be people who are forgiven by God and there are people who aren't. Which is another way of saying, there are those who follow Jesus and those who don't. I can't tell by looking at you. You all look beautiful to me. It's one thing saying it. It's another confirming that it happened. Because the thing about forgiveness is it's invisible. You don't change. There's no measure. 
See, every miracle Jesus performed, you could see it with your eyes. I mean, when, when he calmed the storm with a word and said to it, shut up, be still, and the, and the wind and the waves collapse into ideal lake conditions, you think, I can see that. When a dead body comes out of a tomb that's been, and the guy's been dead for four days, Lazarus comes and he comes out, give for and all. You can see it. When there's a person with a, 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 leper, a leprous condition that's so evident, and then in a moment he gets here, you can see it. And so the miracle of forgiveness, which by the way is the harder one to believe, I think. The miracle of forgiveness gets demonstra- confirmed here by this other miracle. Verse 10. Now Jesus given the evidence. A bit like how the resurrection will ultimately function, confirming that Jesus paid for our sins. So, verse 10. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now notice that I want you to know in a world where we seem to love agnosticism, you know the humble agnostic? Not so humble. He's saying, I don't know and you can't know either. That's not humble. <laughs> He's saying, I want you to know. I'm telling you with the express purpose that you will know. Know what? That the Son of Man, Jesus, has authority, the right to, on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and walk. So he did the visible miracle, the healing of the disabled man, so that you would know that the greater miracle forgiveness of sins took place and then we're told he did it verse 12 he got up took up his mat and walked out in full view of them all well this amazed everyone now we've got eyewitnesses see and God is and and, and there, there they are saying we have never seen anything like this now notice the man doesn't limp out <laughs> oh thanks Jesus I'm marginally better <laughs> he walked out Because when Jesus heals, he heals completely. Just like when he forgives, he forgives completely. Friends, there's nothing Jesus won't forgive. There's nothing Jesus can't forgive. That's why personally I think the miracle of forgiveness is a much harder one for humans to grasp. Once you know Jesus is God, you can understand everything else. You can understand, of course, you can walk on water and heal heal the sick. But really? Really? Forgive me for everything I've done. Well, that's what he's offering here. There are some wonderful pictures about forgiveness. It seems like God not only wants to forgive us, but he actually wants us to know we're forgiven. So he goes out of his way to communicate. In the Old Testament, before Jesus came, God said, when I forgive you, it's like this. It's like I take all your sins and I put them behind my back so that whenever I see you, I see perfection. If only others could treat us like that. (laughs) Especially our spouses. Perfection. Or there's another image where God says, I take all your sins and I plunge them at the very deepest part of the ocean, left there, never to be used against you on the day of judgment again. Wow. All of those sins, every one of them, past, present, future. Oh, that one as well. Oh, that one as well. Oh, every, oh, that one as well. Yes, that one as well. Plunged. But of course, they're not plunged at the bottom of the sea, are they? They're stapled to the body of Jesus there at the cross because... This, on, this, on this day, Jesus handed that man a blank check, right? He offered him a promise. My son, your sins are forgiven. But as you know about checks, they're absolutely, were absolutely useless unless you've got money in the bank, right? And Jesus will have to make that promise good. And three years after this moment, he would willingly, deliberately, and dare I say lovingly, climb upon that cross and there have your sins and mine stapled to his body where he assumes full responsibility for every failure we've committed, for every sin we've grieved God. 
you know, I'm going to pray a sinner's prayer at the end of this sermon. But we can only pray a sinner's prayer. Why? Because Jesus died the sinner's death in our place. And now as the living Lord of the universe, he commands all people to turn and trust him and enjoy the, the absolute privilege of knowing the slate is clean. You're in a permanent state of, of forgiveness and a child of God. It's ironic, isn't it, that the religious leaders resisted Jesus' offer of forgiveness. It seems to me, it's, it's always been the problem of religion. Even Christian religion, dare I say, that doesn't, wants to either deny or hold back the capacity of Jesus' willingness to forgive. It's almost like we, we it's almost too risky. And uh, these guys, they just don't want a bar of it. Um, years ago, Salman Rushdie wrote a novel uh, called Satanic Verses, and it really offended certain parts of the Muslim community, especially in Iran. And the Ayatollah Khomeini put out what's called a fatwa, which is like a, a contract that every Muslim, if they had the opportunity, they should take him out and kill him because he has blasphemed the name of Allah. And uh, so for the last pretty much 40 years, he's been living with this death sentence under him. And, and he actually asked for forgiveness and apologized for writing it because he obviously wanted to get on with his life and he's had bodyguards ever since and he's pleaded with the Ayatollah to remove the fatwa and so forth. And they, in fact, rather than remove it, they reissued it and they said, there will be no forgiveness for Salman Rushdie. He must die. Allah has been offended. Oh my goodness, you think, I'm cornered. And in a sense, if God were not a merciful God, we'd all be cornered. There's something about Islam that gets this part so right that God takes our sins so seriously that there's nothing natural about forgiveness. But tragically, they just haven't tuned in to what God's Son has said that I do have the authority from my Father to forgive sin, to offer a clean slate. I think of the first man who got baptized. We've got a baptism pool under the stage in our church, 2010. The, the first person who got uh, baptized, his name was Josh. He's Josh. And uh, he, he too was an Iranian who was once a Muslim. And, um, and when, he, when the penny dropped for him about Jesus' capacity to forgive sins, he said, Raymond, I, I do very bad accents, so this could sound like an Irish guy. Raymond, it's as if Jesus... Sorry, I always get this quote wrong. I'll, I'll, read, I'll, I'll have a look at my notes just to make sure. <laughs> Raymond, it's like Jesus is looking for an excuse to forgive us. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? What he's saying is Jesus naturally... Uh, you open the heart of Jesus and his first inclination is to want to wipe the slate clean for you. He so wants you to be with him. And the thing that has broken his heart has been removed by him at the cross so that there'll be no barrier separating you and him. I have come that you may be forgiven. I have come that you may have life. I wonder whether today's the day for some of you that you accept this offer. This could be the first time you've ever heard it or simply you've played the religious game but never quite allowed Jesus to come that close to you and invite him to wash away all your sins and cancel the debt that you know is there and that he's wanting to do. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now. But before we do that, I think for the rest of us who know Christ, you know, 2019, brand new year, woo! Fresh start, great. 
It's true, I love bread you use. Like the calendar helps me think fresh starts all over again. Except I'm a week into it, two weeks into it, and all the things that stressed me out in 2018 have folded me into 2019. I'm back where I started. Because in the end, in the end, it's, it's Jesus' authority to forgive is, is the only place I can come to for that permanent fresh start. I can, a calendar won't do it for me. A shift in the year won't do it for me. Don't deal with your guilt. As those of you who know Jesus, don't keep trying to deal with your guilt any other way. It is a dead end. You keep coming back to the, the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Remember, there's nothing he can't forgive. Yes, that constantly recurring, even that one. And I think if you grasp that, you know the clue that you'll grasp it? You'll be quick to confess your own sin to God, to yourself, to others. I dare say some of you have never apologized to your spouse. They're still waiting for it. How on earth can you actually genuinely believe you're forgiven if you can't own your failure? It's one of the liberating things. Once you know you're forgiven, you can wear the consequences of your failure. You can stand with God and agree that what you did was wrong last week. And rather than having to play that denial game, minimization game, I always think of Canterbury Bankstown. Salary cap came. You know the salary cap in rugby league? Uh, to me, this, this story just reminds me of me as well as humanity. The salary cap, okay? Every rugby league team is given only a certain amount of money. You're not allowed to spend any more, right? And, it's, and if you do, there's big penalties. I don't know, 10 years, 15 years. Canterbury Bankstown busts the salary cap big time. They get exposed. They say, we didn't do it, we didn't do it. That was their first reaction. Okay, we did do it, but it wasn't as bad as you're saying. It was. Then they say, well, everyone else does it. <laughs> and then they say, anyway, the problem's with the salary cap. <laughs> I think, oh, well, you just get over yourself and admit you just did it and we're the consequence. You know why we, we can't do it? Because we don't believe Jesus actually genuinely forgives. Clearly other humans struggle, but he, he struggled to the point of death and has now dealt with it. Stop playing the game of thinking that you're going to deal with your guilt in any other way. It doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do your relationships any good. It doesn't do your relationship with God any good. This is what's supposed to free us. This is where a transformed life begins. You want to start 2019? This is where it's going to begin. Jesus' authority to offer you a fresh start. And then let this wonderful good news inspire you to go and tell the rest of family and friends and whoever you bump into this year that there is a God who is saying, my goodness, there is nothing he won't forgive. You can't keep that good news to yourself, can you? I think of these friends, these four friends who bring their, they're so committed to bringing their, their disabled mate to Jesus that they would punch a hole through someone else's roof to bring him. How's that for love? I think of the two guys who carried a, a woman in a wheelchair in uh, you know, September 11 in the trade towers after the planes went in. They're, they're carrying through the stairwell this, this woman. She gets to about, they get to about level 18. The, the building's about to implode. And she says, leave me here, save yourselves. Leave me here, save you. They said, we are not leaving without you. And they carry her down right through to the bottom. They walk out of the building with her and then the building implodes. That's what friends do. That's what, if you love someone. Well, you've seen the example of these four friends. Use that to illustrate how desperate are you to get family, friends, work colleagues to meet Jesus, whether it's by inviting them to a service, to the Christianity Explored course, or just opening the Bible with them. Say, would you like to read the Bible with me? Why don't we just pause for a moment, eh?
where is God, in what way has God spoken to you this morning? Perhaps you want to close your eyes. And I'll just quietly walk each of you through where it might be for you. For those of us who are Christians and look towards 2019, have you allowed the forgiveness of Jesus to transform you? Are you quick to, fi- quick to confess? Are you still playing the denial game when it comes to your failures with others? If that's the case, ask God to change you now. May you be someone who won't do pretend with God and with others. As you think about your friends, do you carry the same desperateness to bring them to Jesus? Will you start praying for them? Will you pray that they will know the forgiveness that you have in your heart and celebrate each day that they may share in that happiness? Will you take personal risks inviting them to church on Sunday? Bring them to a Christianity Explored course, opening the Bible with them. And for those of us who have never said yes to Jesus and received this offer of forgiveness, Can I invite you now to join with me in the quietness of your heart to pray this prayer? Make it your own as you echo it to God. Dear God, I am a sinner and without you I don't stand a chance. So thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for forgiving all of my sins. Thank you for giving me a permanent, clean slate, an eternal fresh start. Lord Jesus, I I will follow you by your grace from this point on, whatever the cost. Thank you for welcoming me into relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.